This episode of Disease Du Jour is brought to you by equinevetedu.com, a free online educational platform for veterinarians from the AVMA PLIT and equimanagement.com. Welcome to Equimanagement's podcast, Disease Du Jour, where each podcast will delve into the research and current best practices for a variety of equine health problems with industry experts. I'm your host, Kimberly S. Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. Today's guest is Dr. Martin Nielsen, one of the world's leading equine parasitology researchers. Dr. Nielsen has been an assistant professor at the University of Kentucky's Maxwell H. Gluck Equine Research Center since 2011. Dr. Nielsen received his DVM in 2001 from the Royal Veterinary and Agricultural University in Denmark. He received his PhD in 2007 from the University of Copenhagen. In 2011, he was board certified as a diplomate of the European Veterinary Parasitology College. And in 2013, he was board certified as a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Microbiologists. After graduating vet school, Dr. Nielsen worked as a clinical veterinarian in the large animal hospital at the Royal Veterinary and Agricultural University in Denmark. And from late 2001 until 2004, he was a practicing private veterinarian in Denmark. Following his PhD work at the University of Copenhagen, Dr. Nielsen worked in various positions at that institution prior to coming to the University of Kentucky. From 2009 to 2011, Dr. Nielsen was the leader of the Large Animal Clinical Service and Research Laboratory, and from 2007 until 2011, he was an assistant professor at the University of Copenhagen. Dr. Nielsen has received numerous awards and honors, and he has authored or co-authored five book chapters. Thank you, Dr. Nielsen, for joining us today on Disease Du Jour to talk about equine parasite control. Thank you. Well, let's jump right in and talk a little bit about the value of checking efficacy. Yes, I mean, we we have recommended uh, using fecal egg counts, parasite surveillance in, in parasite control programs for a long time. And, and when I say we, not just me, but also my, my predecessors, the, the first papers on these concepts actually were published uh, 25 years ago. So this is not by any means a novel concept. But um, having worked in this area for quite a while, as you outlined, um, you know, I've come to the realization that, you know, what do we use these egg counts for? What's the most, uh, what's the most important application of these parasite fecal egg counts? And my opinion is, you know, the, the, what comes first is you got to check if the deworming is actually doing what you think it's doing or what your clients think it's doing. And the reason is, obviously, that in many cases it isn't. And, you know, if you want to, if, if you want to, change anything uh, in, in, in the approach for parasite control uh, with your clients, you know, the starting point is often to show them that, you know, what you think you're doing might not actually be doing much anymore. And, and if you want to change uh, a mindset uh, or if you're working with a skeptical client or if you yourself uh, are skeptical about all these recommendations, the starting point, in my opinion, is to actually just check what people are already doing, and it's pretty simple. Um, you know, the, the, the gold standard, and you, you can see that outlined in the AAEP Parasite Control Guideline document, is the so-called fecal egg count reduction test. 
And, and already just by saying that, a lot of people start getting really tired because, oh gosh, that sounds so involved and so cumbersome. And yes, you, you need a group of horses, uh, recommended uh, six horses that are eight count positive pre-treatment and you deworm them all with the same product. You go back two weeks after and collect samples from the very same six horses and then you calculate the percent efficacy. It's not that complicated. But a more pragmatic approach, which I mentioned to many people is, yeah, it's two samples from the same horse. It's, it, it is uh, involved, but if you just wanna get some egg counts, that will provide you with meaningful information, just go back and check two weeks post-treatment, two weeks post-whatever people have just done, and there shouldn't be anything there. Uh, and, you know, with certain product categories, uh, I assure you, you will find eggs, and I think then you'll have a conversation with that client. And there, and there might be an option, uh, opportunity for going back and doing more testing or certainly making some changes in, to, to the whole approach for parasite control. So, you know, that is the most important uh, uh, application of these egg counts. That's really where I think the conversation in many cases should start. And then, you know, from there, you could, you could take the route of wanting to develop a more refined, a more sophisticated parasite control program. And there are lots of papers, including even a book by someone on how to do that. And you can get some guidance from the very same uh, uh, AAEP guideline document. You know, it sort of lays out the rules and the, and the game plan and, you know, the concepts you should be thinking about in order to develop that. And there you could start like implementing these egg counts for other purposes than just evaluating efficacy. I really think efficacy comes first. And uh, we have realized in recent years through several studies we've done, questionnaire surveys, that uh, not very many people do that ever. Uh, a lot of people have never ever done it. A few have, might have done it like on occasions. Uh, so I would like over the next few years to see that change. Uh, and you don't have to do it on every single horse on the premise. I mean, it's a, a, a group of horses would be enough to get useful information. Um, and so I think that's an important message as well. Well, we all know that parasites evolve and that the science concerning parasitology evolves. So what are some of the new papers that are out there that you think veterinarians should have, you know, pay a little attention to? Yeah, I think... Um, we're working in the field of biology and the whole concept of drug resistant resistance in the parasites I think is the prime example of how there was an adaptation, some kind of involvement going on. And so what we said ten years ago or twenty years ago, we probably, you know, aren't or shouldn't be saying today. Um, and I, I do get sometimes a little bit of Resistance or frustration uh, from people that go, Dr. Nielsen, you used to not say it this way, or you used to recommend this, and now you're not saying that anymore. And that's that's you know, can you can you make up your mind? And I I can make up my mind, but you know, in the game that I'm in, it is to stay current with what's going on, and and the resistance pattern, for example you know, is not the same as it was 10 years ago. It is progressively getting worse. And we have to update uh, veterinarians on this. We do update the AAP uh, Parasite Control Guideline document. So uh, there is a, another update underway. And I think by the time of the, this podcast being published, I think that should be out. And, and so if you read that, um, you get an update on what the current levels of resistance are. And, 
not that you necessarily can predict 100% what the levels of resistance will be at a given farm, but there, you know, there is a probability to chart, right? The widespread resistance to some drug classes, you're likely to find that on your, on your client's farms. And then uh, some of the emerging uh, resistance category to, you know, to other products and other parasites, yeah, that's where the testing will tell you. Um, most recently, uh, I have been involved with, actually over the past several years, to try and take all this information and organize it in a better way. Because, you know, worms, parasites, it should be relatively simple. It used to be, it used to be this, this chart that you would print out and then pin up on the wall in the barn and you would know like the first Tuesday of every whatever month you would do something and then, you know, typically along with some vaccinations and something else and parasite control was easy. <clears throat> It is more complicated now, and that, of course, is, is, is an annoying message to be getting when you're a practitioner and you just want something simple so you can go out and do it. Um, and I think the simple message, again, is guys and gals, test the efficacy. That's your starting point. But what we've done in terms of organizing all this information, so, you know, understanding what it takes for a parasitic, strong-gel parasitic, to hatch and develop into the infective stage on pasture. Well, that's highly weather and climate dependent. And so when are the parasite transmission seasons? And that, again, is different from area to area. How do we best map that out? And what happens once the horse has ingested the infective stage for the strong-gel parasite, that's, that's the third-stage larva, and the age of the horse will matter. Uh, foal uh, will respond differently than a yearling and then a an adult horse and there is an immune response albeit incomplete but there is one and so an older horse will respond differently than a younger horse and the numbers of worms will be different there is some arrested development of the insistent larvae that also pans out very differently depending on the age and also time of year and so all of that you know we have a lot of knowledge by reading all the papers so you're basically mining through papers from the last 50 years uh, understanding the biology, the climate influence or weather influence, and then on top of that, um, uh, the host response, immunology, inflammatory responses, and finally resistance, like the genes. What are the genes? How are they? Like, what's the mode of inheritance? Uh, what do we know? What do we not know? And that has all been uh, implemented in a computer simulation model that we just published. We have three papers out, and the model it, it takes into account. Um, you access data from a weather station. Typically, we do 10 years worth of data. And I'm here in Kentucky, and what I, I've been here for eight years, and what I hear every year is uh, people saying, um, this year's been an unusual year uh, weather-wise. And so every year apparently is a little unusual. So certainly there is variation between years, and I can confirm that. So sometimes we have a hot and dry summer. Other times it's hot and wet, and other times it's not as hot but still wet. And then we have a, a winter that will never disappear like we had this year, and other times we get spring already in early March. And so all that matters. And so there is variation. So between years, there will be variation when it comes to when do these parasites actually develop and become infective on pasture? So when is the parasite transmission season? Our model can then tell us. So we, what we typically do is that we take 10 years worth of data and then we map out the mean and the minimum and the maximum. So now you know what the expected range is. So uh, uh, we have like for Lexington, Kentucky, but we could do it for any kind of climate. In the papers we publish, we, we've done North Dakota, we've done Georgia, we've done Texas, we've done Florida. 
uh, one of my co-authors is German, so we wanted Germany there, so we also have Germany. Different climates, sometimes just subtle differences, sometimes um, pretty substantial differences. But it matters. I mean, the take-home from some of that work, and there'll be more work going forward. We are not done with all the modeling stuff here. Um, but but recommendations that might be useful, meaningful, and actually impactful in one climate, one area, may not be in another. And so timing of the treatment matters. Um, North Dakota has a short and sweet parasite transmission season and then a pretty substantial off-season where it's just too cold. That makes it kind of easy to approach parasite control, but you really need to think about what you do surrounding and during that uh, parasite transmission season. Now here in Lexington, Kentucky, parasite transmission season is probably about nine months. So a lot of stuff can be going on and it's certainly not short and sweet. And so what do we do um, there and what should be the timing? And yet again, if you go to Florida um, and other places like that, you, you need to think about, well, um, there could be parasite transmission year round, but maybe horses aren't turned out year round. So all these things need to be taken into play. Uh, and when, what the modeling work has also helped us doing is uh, you know, ask new questions. So a lot of things we actually don't know a lot about, uh, believe it or not, uh, about the basic biology of the parasites. I think these questions have been sort of set aside for a long time uh, when we had all the, all the drugs, all the antimedics that actually still worked. Ivermectin was doing great. Nobody really saw a need for doing a lot of this biology, basic understanding the biology of the parasite, the biology of the horse harboring the parasite and all that stuff. But now... <laughs> We are just like reverting back to all these questions because we really need to, and uh, we don't have any information from the pharmaceutical industry in terms of new products in the pipeline. So the anthematic product categories that we have, there are only three uh, for the nematodes. Um, they're the same uh, that we had 30 years ago. That's unchanged, and we don't have, in at least in a foreseeable future, no information about anything new coming up. But once that does happen, and it should, and we really need it to be happening, we need new products, new modes of action, it probably should happen at some point. What we need to do there is to not commit the same mistakes. Not go back to, oh, all right, we're home saved. Let's go back to chemical warfare. Let's blast these critters like six months, six times a year. Oh, oh, 12 times a year. Um, that would be a terrible mistake. So I'm in the game of, of basically being as informed as possible also for that scenario and then maybe making the right recommendations for, for a possible new product when that ever happens uh, and how to best use it and make it m the most sustainable uh, as possible. And, uh, and it, I mean, resistance is inevitable if you want to use any kind of therapeutic to treat a, an organism, micro, macro, resistance is bound to happen, So, but it's a question of the rate at which it happens, how quickly does it happen, and you know, what's the lifetime of that product. Um, I think, you know, as, as a comment regarding the resistance situation, like, uh, like I said earlier, it's getting worse and worse, it's only heading in one direction, we're kind of heading towards that cliff, where the lemmings running towards the cliff. Um, but what's, um, I think there's, a, there's still a good message uh, in this, at least thus far. If we look at the three 
um, anthematic categories uh, available for horses as well as any livestock. We've got the benzimidazoles, we've got the pyrimidines, and the macrocyclic lactosomes. Each of these still have a place in equine parasite control, meaning they still have some parasites that they actually work well against. And so there is no one category that we can just go, like, skip it, not useful anymore, drop it, uh, we, it's just worthless, at least yet. But what has happened with each of these is that they all went from being broad spectrum, especially the macrocyclic lactones, but actually also the other ones. And, and you know, the development we have, we've observed is just, you know, towards more narrow spectrum products. So take, for example, uh, ivermectin, wonder drug. A couple guys got the Nobel Prize for it a few years ago. Very deserved. Um, doesn't work at all against aspirate parasites anymore, anywhere. I mean, if anybody out there has evidence of a place, a farm, an equine operation where ivermectin still works, please give me a call because I would like to publish that. It is highly unlikely. Uh, I will just put it that way. But still works, uh, still reduces strong-child parasites um, quite effectively. <clears throat> there is some recent development there, though, that's concerning. So the egg counts are now coming back much quicker following treatment than they used to in the same from oxidectin. Actually, in a way, even more pronounced from oxidectin, the Quest products, that used to suppress egg counts for like three months or so, uh, were down to four weeks. Four weeks, the egg counts were back for both ivermectin and oxidectin. Okay. Looking at benzimidazoles, um, same situation against strongyls. Show me a place where it still works. It could happen. It'd be really, really rare. A place where maybe people haven't even dewormed at all for years, or dewormed very little. You might still find places where a benzimidazole product would would affect would be effective against strongyl parasites. For the most part, not anymore. And this is across the world. But they're still really good against ascarids. They also work well against like pinworms, for example. So there are parasites uh, against which uh, this category still works. So we just we have we have products that still work, but they're just more narrow spectrum now compared to what they used to be. So one of the things that has been discussed out in the veterinary industry is the use of combining some of these dewormers, and I know there have been papers published on yep. this. So what? What is the current train of thought on that? Um, it's important to first uh, emphasize that there's sometimes some confusion about the concept of uh, combination deworming um, because it could be one or two things. You can combine two actives targeting different parasites to make it a more broad spectrum product. And we do have examples of that here. Uh, there's the ivermectin prosequanol combinations as well as the moxidectin prosequanol. Prosequanol only works against tapeworms. It's added to the product to broaden out the spectrum. Some people would regard that as combination, and yes, it is. But um, in, in terms of using combination deworming as a strategy to delay or counteract resistance development, the concept is actually to combine two or more actives, dewormers, targeting the same parasite but with different modes of action. At this, so, and, and as an alternative to the classic rotational deworming where you go like one product one month and then next time you treat, you use another one with another mode of action and the third time you use the third one. The combination approach, 
I can, I can say that now, loudly and clearly, doesn't do anything against parasites, resistance in parasites. Uh, doesn't, we don't accomplish anything. And for a lot of reasons, but I think you know this has been practiced for decades, and bottom line is with all the resistance we have today, I think it's safe to say it didn't do what we thought it would be doing. So rotational deworming is not a strategy against resistance, drug resistance in the parasites. Um, some work coming out in New Zealand uh, when they were launching a couple new uh, products, new dewormers uh, for sheep parasites, because that has happened. We haven't had any new ones for horses, but for sheep and ruminants, they did actually launch a couple new dewormers, new modes of action. Um, they, uh, for one of them, launched it as a combination uh, dewormer. And, and they did some research behind it, some of it was modeling. Uh, showing that resistance will be slower to develop when you when you do it with a combination. Interestingly, and <clears throat> I think I think the law and the regulations for um, getting approval for new products may be different in uh, countries like New Zealand and Australia because that led the pharmaceutical industry to develop and launch a slew of combination products. And basically, all the possible combinations you can think of, they have them and more to it. And so you have three-way combinations, four-way combinations, um, and <clears throat> I think farmers, uh, producers, sheep, cattle, deer, and horse owners very quickly uh, learned or heard that, well, combination is good. Uh, so, and then they kind of concluded that then single active, active products must be bad. So the companies actually then struggled uh, even selling their single active products, so they just went combination. Um, what we see here in this country and, and elsewhere on the northern hemisphere, we typically don't have these combination products, but we have veterinarians in some cases doing combination deworming on an extra label basis. Uh, and I do get a lot of questions. Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, or what combinations would be the good ones. Um, so we started doing some work on this because um, the modeling work that they did with the, in the, with the sheep parasites and then that new product that they was being launched um, for sheep parasites, that's a, that's a very different scenario. I mean, so you're modeling the introduction of a completely new anthelmintic drug class, new mode of action, no resistance developed that we know of. And then what's the value of combining it with another yet effective, still effective dewormer uh, compared to launching it as a single active? But in the horse industry, we don't have that scenario. I just talked about it. There's resistance to everything. Some degree of resistance has developed to every single anthemetic in most of the parasites. If we look at the Stargell parasites, there's actually evidence of developing resistance even to the macrosacred bacterium. So there's no like uh, category we can say that Oh, to which one? To this one, we don't have any resistance. So the starting point is entirely different. And you cannot just assume that because the work with the sheep dewormer in New Zealand showed some promise, then all combinations are good. So what we did here, we have um, some research herds, some really historic and unique parasitology research herds that have been here at the University of Kentucky since the 1970s. Um, one has been dewormed regularly, nothing excessive, well, you can argue that, but nothing, nothing more than what people would do on, on, on their own farms, like deworming them maybe six times a year with, with available paste dewormers. 
And as a result, uh, over the years, they first developed resistance to the benzimidazole. These are the cyathostoma and small stormdial parasites. First resistance uh, developed to benzimidazole uh, dewormers, and then afterwards to the pyrimidines, uh, the pyrantel type products. So they are now double resistant, which is a typical scenario, by the way, on most farms out there in this country. That's actually the likely finding to find resistance to both, to two out of three uh, anthelmini drug classes. So <clears throat> we thought, okay, let's evaluate this. So when you have resistance, it doesn't mean that it that necessarily that the product doesn't reduce any at all. There's typically some reduction, but not nearly up at the level of the 95% or higher that it used to be. And, and so we checked that first with this herd, and um, we got... Uh, with the benzimidazole, in this case, uh, oxybenazole anthocyte, uh, 60% reduction, and then with the strongid uh, parental pamoid product, about 50% reduction. So clearly resistance, um, some reduction, but not nearly out where it should be. Then we combined the two and got 75% reduction, so better than each of them by, the, by themselves, but not 95% or anywhere near that. So is that good enough? Um, one could argue that a 75% reduction of a worm burden is probably enough to provide some clinical relief to a given animal, but is it sustainable was really what we wanted to ask. So in this study, we were able to go back and retreat with that same combination a total of you know, three more times, so four total, over the course of a year, uh, eight weeks apart. And uh, the efficacy went from the 75% that was decent not great, but decent, to 30%. And then it stayed at 30% for all the consecutive treatments. We just hit exactly 30% every time uh, we went back and tested. So, so starting efficacy matters. Uh, if you have resistance already developed, a combination of those actives is probably a very bad idea. Uh, and uh, so don't do that. By all means, or if you want to do combination, you gotta you gotta do what we did. Go back and start out by checking the starting efficacy of each of the two actives that you were thinking about combining. And if you're in the range that we were, which you're very likely to be, then don't do it. Um, and um, <clears throat> you can you can actually there's an additive effect formula. It's in one of our papers. So if you have that starting efficacy of dewormer A and the starting efficacy of dewormer B, you can actually calculate what the combined efficacy will be. We did that and we proved that, that for the first treatment it worked, but not for the next ones, obviously. Um, we have a second study that we are sort of, we're still doing some data analysis and actually some computer modeling uh, on two, where we combined a macrosacred lactone high efficacy with, uh, with the anthocyte with 60% uh, efficacy to see how that would pan out um, across time because obviously then you're going to get good reduction, but is there any benefit to the combination, to combining it with anything? And so those are the questions we're trying to address. Um, so uh, <clears throat> people went a little overboard, um, you know, down under uh, with all those combination products. And uh, it was interesting to spend, I was recently six months in uh, New Zealand uh, doing research with um, with my collaborators. And it's, it's an interesting dynamic and scenario and making recommendations for parasite control is also different because the products are different and there's like you got to be thinking differently about these things um, but it's, it's an experiment in itself and uh, we may 
if we use these combination products correctly, the right way, we may get some benefit, but we could also really make things a whole lot worse for ourselves. So, uh, I'm from Denmark. We have a saying in Denmark. Um, I haven't found any equivalent of that in, in American English, but we say, you know, if you pee in your pants, it might feel nice and warm in the beginning, but it quickly gets very nasty. That's how I look at combination deworming, if you use it the wrong way. So, don't pee in your pants. And what, um, what do you think some of the future research focus should be in parasitology? So, with, um, <clears throat> with, with current technology, uh, sequencing, genetic sequencing of uh, both the genome itself and also uh, the transcriptome, so meaning the, the genes that are actually expressed in being expressed as, as RNA, those technologies have become so much more affordable, um, which allows us to, in a much more efficient way, to understand what are the actual genes. We know remarkably little about that. The genes behind resistance, and, and it's, it's, you know, we, I think the simplistic thinking we used to have was like, well, it must be some sort of mutation. Like, we, we find a gene for the receptor for, the, for that drug, and if there's a mutation in that receptor, then they'll be resistant. And that's actually, that, that seemed to hold true for the benzimidazole uh, resistance, which was the first type of resistance to really develop in these parasites, not just in the horse parasites, but also in, in other animals. And, and there were a couple of mutations identified, and I think it somewhat misled us a little bit to thinking that, oh yeah, that's how it works. But it's much more than that. And there may be mutations, but it's also a matter of which genes are upregulated, which genes are downregulated, metabolism, transporting substances in and out of cells, all those mechanisms in play. And again, it gets complicated. Uh, we've done some work here with, uh, with the parasquis parasite. Interestingly, uh, there are lots of ascorid parasites in veterinary medicine, so you know, small animals get ascorids, uh, people get ascorids. Uh, there, there was an ascorid actually in uh, cattle, not very commonly occurring, but uh, you know, uh, it does happen. And interestingly, and ascorids in poultry, big problem, uh, but not much resistance going on any of these other, other escort parasites. Kind of astounding because of all the, when you think about all the problems we have in the equine world with resistance to ivermectin, so widespread. I mean, I once at a conference was talking about this and uh, I was sort of making the statement that, you know, treating with ivermectin is just works just as well as, as treating with water uh, against ascorids. It does nothing, and I got corrected by one of my peers. He said, Martin, that's not right. And I was like, oh, what? What did I say wrong? And he said, no, it's more like you know a vitamin boost. Actually, uh, the parasites thrive and the egg counts go up after treatment. That's how it is. And so, so, so we have a very different scenario, and you know, one might argue that maybe we're just a little bit ahead of development and, and these other ascorid parasites might actually just follow suit in human, uh, human health in developing countries. There's a big emphasis on mass administration of anthemetics to people in villages because they have all these, they get all these ascorid parasites. They can get ascorid lumpercoides, which is the human ascorid, but there's also the swine one, which likes to infect people as well. And they, they have all these pigs running around and living in the housing on dirt floors anyway. And so, 
mass administration of antimicrobial products to people in developing countries, that sounds good. Lots of NGOs are really doing great things to improve the health of these people, but is it sustainable long term? I think we've learned a lesson in veterinary medicine that it might not be. But then, how does it happen? What are the genes uh, that are involved? So we have developed a system with ascorbic parasites here. Uh, one of my graduate students, um, Jessica Scare, first uh, worked, spent a lot of time collecting live worms in and she called them wellness spots that she developed for the worms. She wanted to keep them happy and alive in these swimming around in these little uh, containers with uh, all kinds of nutrients uh, to really keep them happy uh, for as long as possible so, uh, so that we could then expose them to different drugs and see how they responded uh, and what genes that they would express. And so that first of all, it took her a long time to really find a way to keep these worms happy. Gosh! They're difficult costumers, I tell you. I mean, I'm glad I'm not running a hotel for these because uh, there's always complaints on the diet restrictions, not happy about whatever the room temperature might be and stuff like that. But she was able to develop a system where she was able to keep them alive for, not, for long enough and to, to do these drug exposure trials. And, and then she did uh, gene expression analysis and, and that paper uh, is actually just submitted but then some genes were identified that hadn't been identified before. And it's not a matter of a mutation, it's a matter of certain metabolic pathways that are activated in response to the drug. And so I think uh, with continuing with more of this kind of work, I think we can really make some substantial, uh, take some substantial steps to, in order to get closer to really understanding, okay, what are the genes and what might we be able to do to I don't know if you can use the word bypass because that sounds a little too overconfident, but at least to maneuver this whole territory of, okay, if we know how the worms respond, we might actually come up with better ways of targeting them. Um, we could maybe potentially even identify new drug targets with this, uh, with this approach. So, <clears throat> and we chose, we chose the ascorbic parasite for several reasons. Uh, first of all, we don't have 50 different species like we have with the strong gels. And you know, probably very likely, you know, one small strong-gel species is probably not responding the exact same way to the treatment as the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So that complicates the picture even more. Um, they're also very difficult to get to and keep alive. Uh, very small. You have to wash and sieve gastrointestinal content, and they don't like to be washed and sieved. And so. With the ascorbic parasites, we have these big critters that we can just grab with our hands and put into uh, these uh, wellness spas. And, and there is, in principle, only one species. Um, actually, there are two uh, parasquist species described for horses, but it, it seems to be quite clear that really there's only one that really is found. The other one is hiding somewhere. We uh, don't know where we can find that anymore, but uh, parasquist equorum is may not really exist anymore, uh, so it's Parasquis univalence. It's just a matter of a name. Um, all the work that we've done and others have done uh, seems to suggest that there's one species, so you only have to deal with one species, which make it, makes it a little bit easier. I do think that we need to do some kind of similar work with the strong gel parasites as well, because the biologies between ascorbates and strong gels are so widely different that we just can't assume that whatever the ascorbate parasite does in response to a drug is going to be the same in the strong gels. I doubt that strongly. <laughs> so lots of work for us going ahead, but I, I do see a lot of opportunities. Uh, 
by all these sequencing technologies becoming available, all the genomes that are being mapped out and annotated, which allows us to kind of look at the genes and find out what they are and what they're doing. Um, so uh, we'll learn, so stay tuned. Well, it sounds like there's a lot going on in the research, and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you in the future. But I guess the take-home message today to veterinarians is the value of checking efficacy of what their clients are using now. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, I think we find we find people, and it actually goes for uh, veterinarians as well as their clients, that are comfortable with how they have done parasite control over the years. and and they're maybe reluctant to change. The reluctance to change uh, is, is a strong one sometimes. And, and they need strong reasons to change. And so I think that's why I'm saying check the efficacy, check what you're already doing before we start like revamping the whole approach for parasite control on this farm. Uh, I always say to people, just keep doing what you're doing. Tell me when you're deworming next. And I'll come out and grab a few post-treatment samples and then we can talk. Good deal. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Nielsen, for joining us today on Equimanagement's Disease Du Jour. And thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can hear previous and future podcasts of Disease Du Jour on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And we hope you will join us in the future for another episode of Disease Du Jour. Thank you very much. <laughs>